Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, telling the history of world trade through maps, art, Ireland, and the Irish diaspora, murder, mystery, and post traumatic stress in ancient Rome, the early years of Northern Ireland, and finally, to end the show, we'll look at a century of struggle during the penal era in the Diocese of Cloyne. Now, last week we discussed whether slavery built modern Britain, found out about electioneering and propaganda in Ireland during the War of Independence, and heard about the development of New York English and how it almost took over the world. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the history of world trade in maps. Trade is the lifeblood of nations. It has provided vital goods and wealth to countries and merchants from the ancient Egyptians who went in search of gold and ivory to their 21st century equivalents trading high-tech electronic equipment from the Far East. A new book brings together more than 70 maps to give a visual representation of the history of world commerce, accompanied by text which tells the extraordinary story of the merchants, adventurers, middlemen and monarchs who bought, sold, explored and fought in search of profit and power. The book is called History of World Trade in Maps. It's published in hardback by Collins and costs £25 sterling, so about €28. The author is Philip Parker. And Philip, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Hello, good evening. And Philip, it is an interesting question when we look back on ancient trade and modern trade. Is it understandable in the same way? Was it the same patterns, the same type of things happening? Fundamentally, yes. The basics of trade and the basic motivations for trade really haven't changed from the the Neolithic age when um, trade really began to start in the sense that we understand it. There was um, a need for something and an understanding that somewhere else, um, a a shorter distance, um, perhaps in the kind of Neolithic age, there was somebody who could provide that need. So as soon as societies um, began to have ambitions beyond the things that they could produce for themselves, uh, they began to trade. So just as, you know, perhaps we might um, be buying um, high-tech goods um, from the Far East because we're not producing them ourselves. Um, in 2000 BC, people might think, OK, obsidian glass, this very sharp, dark volcanic glass, which is great for cutting things before you've got metal. Uh, we don't have that. We haven't got a volcano. Those guys over there do. So we'll trade something with them. There are some beautiful maps reproduced in the book. How difficult was it uh, selecting them and making sure you had a good balance and a good representation? And how difficult was it to find uh, all of the ones that you wanted? No, it's never easy. Very often the problem is um, having too many things um, to select from because, you know, I've I've always loved maps and um, there's a kind of embarrassment of riches. Um, But because we were looking at trade specifically, um, it was a matter of finding maps which weren't necessarily produced uh, by the cartographers originally to illustrate um, the issue, to find things which actually kind of shed some light on on the history of trade. So that was probably the more difficult thing than than finding beautiful historic maps themselves, but finding ones which could actually kind of illustrate a particular aspect of the history of trade. So talk to me about some of the things you explore in. For example, uh, what type of trade was more important historically? Was it trade in luxuries or was it trade in necessities? They're kind of, um, they're kind of twins, um, really, twin aspects of trade. Um, the trade in necessities, obviously, by its very nature, it's, it's something that, that you've got to have. But the trade in luxury is always something that goes on top. It's, it's often perhaps the thing that's going to pay for the merchant's um, expenses. It, you know, um, if you're shipping tons of grain, 
um, some beautiful jewelry will just you know slip on your camel or you know slip in your container and will you know give you that extra bit of profit and um, you know there's always always a market for luxury goods because you know those are really the things that you know can't be can't be got at home or they're really the things for which a market can be promoted or created by um, a clever salesman. So, you know, they, they always really go hand in hand. And the book also captures the great excitement about uh, some of these journeys for for trade. So, for example, uh, there used to be these races to see who could uh, get to Britain first with the tea from China. You know, once once kind of people in northwestern Europe developed a taste for tea, which was really kind of, you know, late 18th, early 19th century, and China was, you know, China was the place that could produce it. China was the place that had this great 2,000-year history of, of drinking tea. But the finest tea, you know, the first harvest was the thing to get. So um, the companies, particularly the British East India Company, um, developed these tea clippers, these really fast, sleek ships, which could, you know, just get there quicker. So there were races every year. And in 1866, there was a particularly fierce race. There were um, four ships that left China more or less at the same time. And, you know, you know, for weeks and weeks, they were kind of head to head, you know, within kind of miles of each other. And in the end, coming into um, the docks in London, um, the winner of the ship uh, was the ship called Taiping, was literally only about 20 minutes ahead of the ship that came in second. You know, from all that huge distance, you can imagine that, you know, the tension as they sort of, you know, came through the English Channel. So, you know, who's going to get there first? Um, and as well as the prestige, there was actually um, a bounty of a pound per tonne um, of tea. So, you know, there's actually a financial reason to get there first. But sportingly, um, the captain of the Taiping, you know, seeing how close it had been, chose to split his bounty with the captain of the ship that came second. You also get a great sense of how people understood the world at that time from these trade maps and how perhaps people in different parts of the world had different perspectives of them. Yeah, I mean, one of the very early maps that we've got, it's... um. It's a Babylonian map of the world. It's, it's sometimes said to be the very first world map. It's from about six or 700 BC. And, it, it, you know, what you say about seeing the world from a very particular perspective, it's illustrated by this one because, you know, what it's a Babylonian map of the world. What's going to be in the middle is actually Babylon. Um, so much as, you know, European maps from the Great Age of Discovery, they have Europe in the middle. And, you know, kind of, you know, atlases and maps we produce now, you know, we'll have our own countries in the middle, you know, whether that be kind of Britain or Ireland or if the maps being produced in China, it might have China um, as the centre. So, you know, the first thing is, um, you know, what's in the centre of the map, what's shown in the map, you know, that shows the, the kind of central perspective of the person who's producing it. And so um, maps from the very early part of the age of discovery, they have Europe in the middle, but, you know, the, kind of outside Europe, the kind of the Americas or Africa, it's at first a bit of a blur. So the explorers and in their wake, the merchants, um, you know, are actually getting the information that actually makes the map better, that makes it easier for people who come after them to, to find their way. And it's also interesting, is it true that you were researching and writing the book uh, during the first lockdown? Yeah, yeah, actually the kind of, you know, the, the major bulk of the writing actually happened um, during, during first lockdown. So, I mean, I, I guess that, you know, some writers go away and have a retreat <laughs> to help them write once they've kind of you know, done some of the research. But uh, mine was an enforced internal retreat um, owing, owing to our first lockdown here. And did that perhaps influence some of your choices because you get a sense of some, how, how, how plagues and pandemics affected things in the past? Yeah, I mean, I guess in, inevitably um, for a couple of the spreads um, that, that are in the book and particularly one at the end, which is looking at um, threats and challenges to world trade, um, the impact of, you know, disease pandemics to the past and, and most notably in the early part of the book, the Black Death, and also, you know, our current COVID pandemic, that was in my mind, you know, what, you know, what impact does that have 
both in the kind of short and medium term um, on trade and also in the long term. Now, um, we don't know yet about COVID and, and its long term impact, but we can see what impact the Black Death had in the, in the 14th century. You know, it, it literally killed a third to a half of the population of Europe um, and the Middle East. So it had an enormous effect um, on the economies and societies of Europe. Um, and yet in the longer term, um, those trade patterns which had existed beforehand began to reestablish themselves. So, you know, you can see that you know, trade is it's a bit like water. You know, it, it always finds its way through and it tends to find its way through to similar pathways as it has done before. And finally, Philip, uh, when you look at how trade changed and how these journeys changed, how much were, was it connected to political power? If you were a great trading country, did political power come with that? If you were a great, if you were a great trading company, it, it was a kind of multiplier of power. It kind of leveraged your power. So there were relatively small um, countries like Venice, um, which actually it made its um, wealth and its political power almost entirely on the basis of trade. It, it was so small it wasn't really producing anything itself. So it, it was a, a consumer and a producer of trade, but not of actual goods. So in that case, it leveraged its power. And kind of move forward to countries like the Netherlands in the 17th century, kind of medium-sized um, countries, which enormously leveraged their political power through um, trading into what's currently Indonesia, where you know, precious spices like nutmegs and cloves could be found, which were fantastically valuable by the time they came back to Europe. So, you know, that helped the Netherlands. And then you get kind of larger countries um, like Britain or now the United States um, and China, where the political power wasn't entirely dependent upon trade. Uh, but the ability to project political power meant that those countries could and can muscle it on into areas. They can either, you know, in the past, either through kind of political aggression in the present, more kind of through kind of economic um, might. You know, actually, you know, they're able to set the terms of trade because they're politically powerful and that cements and solidifies their trade. So always trade helps kind of in, increase your power. But you, if you've already got kind of, kind of population and military might, um, that together with kind of um, trading prowess means it's a kind of combination that's really hard for other countries to beat. Very good. Well, the book is called History of World Trade in Maps. It's published in hardback by Collins and costs £25 sterling, so about €28. Euro. The author is Philip Parker. And Philip, thanks so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book reveals the labyrinth of social and cultural connections that conspired to create and sustain an image of Ireland for the nation and for the Irish diaspora between 1893 and 1939. Featuring a glittering cast of players including Jack B. Yeats, George Russell, Lady Gregory and Sean Keating and richly illustrated in colour with images from archives on both sides of the Atlantic, the book presents a wealth of new research and draws together for the first time a series of themes that bound the Dublin art scene with that in New York and Chicago. The book is called Art, Ireland and the Irish Diaspora, Chicago, Dublin, New York, 1893-1939, to Culture, Connections and Controversies. It's published in paperback by Irish Academic Press and costs €35. Euro. The author is Emer O'Connor. And Emer, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Patrick. Thank you for having me on. Can we talk about the connections, uh, these cultural connections? Because it is quite fascinating uh, how there is such an interest in these uh, artists and in Irish art uh, across the Atlantic during this period. Yeah, it is fascinating, isn't it? And I, I, I think that sometimes we have to stop and think 
how connected we used to be many, 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 many years ago without internet and mobile phones and all of that. You know, people travelled by boat uh, to and from New York. Uh, and so the connections were extraordinary and incredibly important. And, and really what's going on in the book is a series of cultural connections rather than visual art connections necessarily. And what I'm trying to get across in the book is is it's people that create culture. It's, a, it's the kind of personalities of the people and those little fine interconnections between people. There's a lot of letters in the book that kind of reveal different stories. Uh, and people love that. You know, pe- people remember things. Nowadays, people remember things when they read those little stories, that the, the, the connections and the controversies between people. And let's also then talk about the controversies because there does seem to be an attention between maybe the the ideal that some of these uh, collectors and patrons had of Ireland and, and what was happening in Ireland and, and the reality. Yes, I think that's true. And I could give you an example of that. One of the artists that I discovered, I found his family actually was Michael Power O'Malley, originally from Dungarvan in Waterford and emigrated to New York, I think about 1912. Now, Michael was a really interesting character. He was a friend of Sean Keating's, which is how I got to know his work. And he would come home to Ireland from New York to paint wonderfully bucolic images all over the country and bring those back. He sold very well. But I'm not sure that he sold quite as well here in Ireland. So there was that thing about the expatriate community being more Irish than the Irish themselves. But we have to remember that this is the generation or the second generation just after the famine. And they suffered a terrible trauma and a terrible loss. So it's sort of understandable that they would have a kind of nostalgic view of Ireland, if you like. But very much there was that tension going on about the imagery and also the tension between tradition and modernity, which we see throughout that period in in the kind of um, creation of culture. And how much did the Irish artists and how much did the Irish government after independence work to develop these connections? Because I see that Ireland took a uh, a prominent role in the, the the New York World's Fair in 1939. There does seem to be a a deliberate attempt to to develop and promote these. Well, you know, the, the the whole World's Fair thing is a thing that runs through the book. So in 1893, we were in the Chicago World's Fair, but that was under the auspices of Lady Aberdeen and Mrs. Hart, and there was two Irish villages and a huge, a huge Irish controversy there. Um, in 1933, we did not have um, a, an official village in the Chicago Fair in 1933, although there was a tawdry affair, as I call it, uh, set up by a group of American Irish people with women in, you know, <laughs> tights and, and, and stockings and, you know, selling shamrocks. It was all very strange. So actually, Ireland had to be persuaded, and it took a lot of persuasion to take part in the 1939 World's Fair. It took a lot of persuasion. Governor Grosvenor came over and stayed, and there was a lot of discussion that went on about it. And Michael Scott, the well-known architect, was commissioned to um, design the Irish Pavilion and as I say in the book, the, his original design wasn't acceptable. Uh, and I'm not sure how happy he ever was with the design. I'm not clear about that. But this was his second or third design, what became known as the Shamrock Pavilion. Now, in the building itself, we really have that tension between tradition and modernity because we're talking about the Shamrock. But the building was built from modern glass and, you know, tin bars of concrete. and was a wonderfully modernist building. So... And at the opening of the, um, the the pavilion in 1939, 
there was all this hope, you know, Sean Keating was over there, he installed his mural uh, himself there, and there's all this hope, and yet the rhetoric of the time, the official rhetoric from the government, was very much about victimhood and our history and um, how badly done by we were, and when it was a moment really to show the world that we were modernising, there was definitely something else going on. But to answer the other side of your question, the first official organisation that came into being to support Irish Art Abroad was the Cultural Relations Committee, which was actually formed in 1949. It, it predates the Arts Council by two years. And then, of course, the Arts Council comes in due to an act in 1950 and it's formulated in 1951. And things improved greatly after that. But in the particular era that I write about, it, it's a very, it's all very tense and it, it's, it's all riddled with these tensions between tradition and modernity. And two of the great strengths of the book, first, there's these beautiful colour illustrations with images that you've got from the various archives, but also a wealth of new information from the many years you've been researching this. That's right. Well, you know, I finished my biography on Sean Keating in 2013 after 10 years working on Keating and I loved every minute of it, did my doctorate on Keating, but I decided I needed a new project. And out of all of these academic projects, when you're writing books or theses or whatever, there's a whole load of stuff that you want to follow up on. And I had a bundle of stuff and I applied to New York Public Library to get into one of their writers' rooms and I was accepted. And in the summer of 2013, I went off for three months to live in New York on my own. I'd never been away that long, you know. <laughs> I'd never been away from home for three months. It was great. And then I went every summer for a month, bar one, for the following seven years uh, to find the information. Uh, and I did a huge amount of work here in Ireland as well and also in some archives in Aberdeen and Scotland to pull it all together. And I'm, you know, I have to say delighted with it but you know writing a book like this is hard work <laughs> it's a lot of research and hard work yeah and it's fascinating Emer. and I wonder how much of it was how much when we look at these connections was it down to an unrealistic image of Ireland that that was in Chicago and New York and how much of it was a genuine a recognition and appreciation of the genius of these artists I don't think that there was a non-realistic uh, view of Ireland. I think there was a very nostalgic uh, view among some people, particularly, uh, you know, expatriates over in America because they were first or second generation po- famine. Um, and an awful lot of was what was going on was actually real. And one of the things that really underpins the book is this issue about home rule that's kind of running through it all the time until we get up to the Civil War, uh, the, the Treaty of Independence and the Civil War and all of that. So that's kind of underpinning everything. But it was all very real uh, and realistic for the people involved at the time. And that's really what I'm trying to get across, which is why I use so many primary source materials like letters. Um, there's a series of letters, for instance, between Lady Gregory and John Quinn, and Lady Gregory is describing her nephew, Hugh Lane's death and, and how it affected her. And it's such a human, wonderful, real story. And yet we tend to think of Lady Gregory as the great august woman that founded the Abbey Theatre. And she was. But behind that, there was an extraordinarily warm maternal person who suffered the loss of Hugh Lane. And then a couple of years later, of course, the loss of her son. His plane fell out of the sky in 1918. He was a member of the British Army and his plane fell out of the sky. She was heartbroken. And you see those things about her 
through the letters. So it, it, it's very real and it was all very real for everybody living at the time. That's the interesting thing about writing a book like this, actually. Okay, well, it's a brilliant new study on culture connections and controversies. It's called Art, Ireland and the Irish Diaspora, Chicago, Dublin, New York, 1893 to 1939, published in paperback by Irish Academic Press. A beautiful production. It costs €35. The author is Emer O'Connor. And Emer, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks so much for having me on, Patrick. I really appreciate it. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. An exciting new novel takes us back in time to the year 145 BC and to ancient Rome as a war hero becomes the prime suspect in a series of murders. The book is called The Return. It's published in hardback by Zafra and costs 14.99 sterling, so about 17 euro. The author is Harry Sidebottom. And Harry, you're very welcome to the show tonight. I'm very pleased to be here. Thanks. Harry, it's a fascinating book. And can you tell us about the research you conducted? Because it's not just about uh, the, what, goes, what life is like in ancient Rome, but also issues like post-traumatic stress disorder and what uh, people who fought in battles might have experienced back then. Yeah, absolutely. I did a lot of research on this, obviously. Um, just to fill the listeners in, I mean, it, it's a, the hero's novel uh, is a veteran who returns from the wars and he walks back into his family farm in a remote bit of Italy, modern Calabria, and he's a haunted man. Something he's seen or done in the wars. It's actually the Achaean War where the Romans are notoriously sacked and destroyed the Greek city of Corinth. Something he's done in that is haunting him. And I don't want to give away the plot, so I'm not going to say what it is. But um, it's an interesting area of research because historians are very divided. Um, if post-traumatic stress disorder or combat stress as it's sometimes called actually existed at all in the ancient world you got on the one hand you've got what you could call the universalist to go well post-traumatic stress disorder exists now people are always the same it must have existed then but on the other hand people who are more culturally specific are going well hang on a minute there isn't actually much evidence for combat stress in the ancient world and a lot of the fundamentals are very different. Um, one thing that triggers it now is killing people. Um, you know. But the ancient world was not a Judeo-Christian thought world. They didn't have an ultimate commandment, thou shalt not kill, you know, very much the opposite. And another thing is that in the modern world, especially with Vietnam veterans, it's found that it's the community they return to doesn't understand what they've been doing. And that, of course, also wasn't the case in the Roman world. So what I've been trying to explore in this novel is whether combat stress existed in the ancient world. Obviously, I come down on the side that it does. But what would trigger it and what forms would it take? The hero doesn't see it as something inside himself. He sees it much more as literally something external haunting him. I'm, I'm treading very carefully here because obviously I don't want to give away the plot of the novel. And you use flashbacks very well to kind of tease out uh, what incidents in the background would have contributed to this. You get a good insight into the effects of the Roman Empire in action and, and, and it has a force of nature in the world at that time. Well, certainly that's the other great theme is Roman imperialism, Roman expansion. I wanted to try and explore not just the obvious question, which I do explore, of why did the Romans go out and conquer pretty much the whole known world around the Mediterranean? But what was the effect on them of doing so? 
Um, you know, how did they justify their own conquest? Did they ever criticize their conquest? And in terms of criticism, what did, did they think it did bad things to them? And the answer is, I think it did. Because the Roman army under the Republic is essentially a citizen militia. These are, these are farm boys who are conscripted into the army. And they go away to fight, and an awful lot of them don't come back. And an awful lot of the family farms, while they're away, get into trouble. Um, it's almost like the Wild West. They seem to get run off their farms by the big neighboring rancher. And it's that kind of impact on Roman and Italian society that I want to explore via this hero in this small town, which is a real town, um, it's the town of Tamisa in Calabria, where I've set it. Um, I've actually wanted to write this novel for years because um, many, many years, I teach ancient history at Oxford. Um, many years ago, I was called upon to teach a course on Cicero that I hadn't taught before. And as part of the reading for that, I came across this incredibly evocative anecdote in Cicero. I think it's in his work, The Brutus, about a murder in Calabria in the forest of Sela. And it just suddenly struck me reading this. This place is like the Wild West. And Roman law doesn't run there. There are outlaws in the woods. They're, they're, the local big men have gangs of hard muscle who are just terrorizing people. It's been about 20 years since I read that. And uh, a couple of years ago, I finally got around to writing the novel, which um, was inspired by it. And what, what led you to make it a murder mystery as well? That was really pure luck in the research. Um, I was. I decided to set it in Calabria because I wanted to write a novel set there because it's the place I love, and it's still a very wild, remote place and a very poor place, part of it, region of Italy. And I came across an incredible ghost story, murder story that's set actually in this little town of Tamisa, where I decided to set the novel anyway, in an ancient source. Um, a Greek writer called Pausanias. Um, so I instantly thought. That's just sometimes as a writer, when you're doing research, you just get these moments of blinding luck when something you're already researching leads off in another line and you think that just fits perfectly. Of course, most of the time, 90% of the research you do never makes it into the book. But, you know, 10% of the time, it's great. The other 90% you think, damn, I really can't use that. I think it definitely captures the mindset of the time. And I think uh, what you, it's very interesting what you said about uh, seeing this, this trauma as being something external, because that was very much the, the view of people at the time, wasn't it? That if there was uh, something like this, that, that there probably was uh, an evil out there that you had to, had to try and confront and that uh, and you have these superstitions and, and that would have been a big part of people's lives as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the religion and superstition was just ingrained in these people. Um, and they can't really get away from it. And you know, why would they? Because everyone else believes in it. So it's some, certainly something I try to work on by using a lot of contemporary literature to try and get that mindset, as you say. Because that's one of the things that I, I really grates for me of a lot of historical novels is when they... You know, they do all the research of the externals and, I don't know, the clothes, the food, the weapons, the houses are right. And then they just put completely modern people like you or me, complete with our modern Western attitudes and values, back into the past. And that's when you think, no, hang on a second. These, these people, you know, the past was another country. It's not only they, they dress differently. They're not us in a fancy dress. These are people 
living in a thought world that, yeah, is in some ways similar to ours and in other ways couldn't be more different. I mean, in some ways, the Romans were as alien as the most primitive tribe in the Amazon or in Papua New Guinea. You know, some of the things they believe are just incredible to our to our way of thinking. Do you have the outline of the story first and then do your research? Or as you're doing the research, do you come across something interesting and say, oh, actually, I'll make that a big part of the book? More the latter, really. Um, I sort of rough it out very basically on literally a couple of sides of A4. Then I plan the research just as if I was researching um, a conventional history book. And I try and visit every location, which obviously with COVID for the last year has been completely impossible. Um, and I do a lot of very targeted research in the Sackler University Library at Oxford. Um, but then once I get researching, I'm quite happy for the story to go in different lines. And I'm still happy when I'm writing it. Before I start writing, which is always the tricky moment, you do all the research. I mean, I've published what? This is my 12th published novel, I think. And just before I start writing, I always get this horrible sort of fearful moment and I think hell I've forgotten how to do this of course you never have but it doesn't half get the adrenaline flowing so what I do is I plan usually the first two or three chapters in great detail and then I plan the last couple of chapters so I know where the thing's going but then when I set off you know in the middle of it if some additional research or just something from the writing of it comes up I'm quite happy for it to go off at a tangent because at least I know at the end where it's coming back to and I think that's very, very important in all forms of novel writing, novels or screenplay writing. You need to know how the thing ends because otherwise you can end up with a horrible mess. That's good advice for uh, planning lots of things in our, in our lives as well. Uh, Harry, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I think our listeners will enjoy the book. It's called The Return, published in hardback. It costs fourteen ninety nine sterling, so about €17. Euro. The author, Harry Sidebottom. And Harry, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. This year marks the centenary of the foundation of the Northern Ireland state, and a new book examines the major political developments of this momentous period in Irish history. It also explores the multifaceted nature of the communal violence that blighted the North in its early years. The book is called A Difficult Birth, The Early Years of Northern Ireland, 1920-1925. It's published in paperback by Eastwood Books and costs €25. The author is Alan Parkinson. And Alan, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you, Patrick. How difficult a birth was it? Exceptionally difficult. Um, You had, obviously, the violence, uh, the war against the British, raging across the rest of Ireland. Uh, And then you had uh, sectarian violence in the northwest of Ulster, uh, in the Derry area, and then it broke out in Belfast itself. Um, And this went on for two years against the backdrop, of course, of major political and constitutional change, which resulted eventually uh, in partition. And as you show, there was quite a lot happening uh, during this period between 1920 and 1925. And what do you see as the, I suppose, the could the violence have been, could, could it have been avoided or was it always going to be a consequence of the partition? I think, um, of course, the violence actually um, happened before, started before, uh, the actual um, reenactment of partition uh, that that didn't come about until uh, officially until the king uh, King George V 
opened Parliament in Belfast in June 1921, but the violence itself actually in Belfast um, started in uh, the, the previous uh, uh, summer, and in fact in Derry a couple of months before that. Um, it, it, it's very hard to say, Patrick. I mean, it, it, it's, it's most... Um, uh, the tension was uh, was was so great. Uh, the uh, the interrelationship, I think, between uh, these political developments and the rising sectarian tension was so great that probably uh, a level of violence, maybe not as great as it actually turned out, but a level of violence was probably inevitable. And how would you define the, the the violence? And was it something that was being committed on both sides, or was there one one part of the one part of the divide suffering more than others? Well, yes, um, I think it's interesting to uh, when you look at the violence. It has been labelled um, um, as a pogrom. Uh, I, I actually um, uh, dispute that interpretation of it because uh, if you look at the um, Origins of the term pogrom, uh, mainly related to uh, violence against the Jewish community in um, late 19th century Russia or in Hitler's Germany in, in, the, in the 1930s. It tends to be state orchestrated violence against uh, one section of the community, and it's that section of the community, one section of the community that suffers all the violence. That wasn't the case in, in the North, uh, but the um, uh, Protestants, uh, hundreds of Protestants also were killed or seriously injured and uh, bore the brunt of the economic damage. However, uh, there was clear disproportionate suffering on the part of Catholics uh, in the north. Um, nearly twice as many of them were killed in the violence and the, the, the Catholic population was about half the size or just over half the size of the Protestant population. So it's a difficult one. Um, uh, there was certainly a disproportionate uh, suffering in one community, but it, uh, the suffering was experienced by all sections of the of the uh, northern community. And maybe share with us some of the more horrific of the incidents, because you have uh, examples of children being killed, families being killed. Like uh, some of the, the the violence was quite brutal and shocking. It was, and, and of course. Um, uh, unfortunately, well, this applies to the the, the revolutionaries, the wider Irish Revolution as well. Um, the those people of ill intent uh, who were determined to uh, maim and to take life um, had a wider range of weaponry available to them. Um, uh, the uh, RRA, for instance, in in the north had access to. Machine guns, uh, high-velocity rifles, those bombs, uh, all kinds of weaponry was 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 available to them. So, uh, it, it, again, it was probably inevitable that there was going to be uh, carnage, and, and and that is what actually did happen. And for example, the Weaver Street killings, uh, you know, all violence is, is is brutal, and and but that was particularly brutal. Yes, I mean there were some awful incidents, um, uh, and. Um, uh, two or three cases, perhaps I might uh, account. One was the brutal uh, slaughter of a prominent um, Catholic family, the McMahon family, in North Belfast um, uh, in March 1922, um, when um, uh, five members of the family and a, a lodger were actually killed 
by man dressed in uniform. It's uh, it's likely uh, that this was the work of what I call rogue cops, uh, members of the RIC uh, who um, had sectarian tendencies uh, who were involved in this. That was one of the incidents. Uh, another one I think that you alluded to, Patrick, was the killing of children uh, in the Weaver Street bombing uh, also a slightly earlier, a few weeks before that, in February 1922, again in North Belfast, uh, where loyalists threw bombs into uh, uh, the ranks of children who were playing street games and killed, uh, uh, killed another five or six people, died in that particular attack. But there were also attacks um, on the uh, Protestant section of the community. So, for instance, um, Frank Aiken, um, uh, his um, IRA division, Northern Division, uh, came across the newly set up, newly created uh, border um, from the IF, from the Irish Free State, uh, and they invaded it at uh, a place called Altnave, uh near the border, Newry, um, where um, it was mainly a Catholic area, but the particular farmlands that they attacked were, uh, were um, owned by Protestants, and uh, six Protestants, including a woman, were actually uh, killed, and many properties were, were burnt down. There were lots of cases, terrible uh, suffering, uh, which went on during those two and a half years. And how do you think the centenary will be commemorated, and how do you think it should be commemorated? Right, uh, two different parts. Uh, I mean, the first part, it, it's um, uh, there is a, a kind of a, a centenary committee of um, serious and significant historians who are at this very moment determining how it should be commemorated. I, I think the word commemoration rather than celebration um, is a more fitting one, particularly uh, for historians who uh, don't take a, a one particular side who try to be sitting they try to be honest and non-partisan in their interpretation of things. Um, I, I think that's what uh, that's how it will actually um, be looked at. It'll be um, uh, people will see that this had a uh, enormous impact on the post um, troubles that period from 1922, the end of 22 onwards. Um, the Catholic section of the community um, felt. Uh, in many ways ostracized from what was going on. They felt isolated. They felt many of them let down by their co-relationists in the South, uh, particularly after the findings of the Boundary Commission in 1925. Um, the Protestant community um, felt angry because of the uh, intrusions of the IRA during the, the, the Troubles, the attitude of the South, and particularly the economic boycott of Belfast at the peak of the Troubles. So it led to um, uh, distrust between the Northern and Southern administrations. As far as uh, how it could well be celebrated, uh, how it will be um, remembered in a few months' time, there will be some uh, who will take great um, joy uh, in, in the occasion. Uh, from certain sections of the unionist community. There will be certain elements of the nationalist and republican communities which will try to diminish the importance of this event. Um, and really, I would argue, and I did argue in a difficult birth, that um, 
this event, uh, this period of history in the north, is, is then in some ways even greater than the events in 1916 in Dublin, um, and because it um, it basically uh, changed the whole political landscape on the island of Ireland, uh, and uh, and of course um, uh, the troubles which um, started in. 1968-69 were in some ways the legacy of um, the 1920s. Well, Alan, congratulations on the book. It's called A Difficult Birth, The Early Years of Northern Ireland, 1920-1925, published in paperback by Eastwood Books. It costs €25. Euro. The author, Alan Parkinson. And Alan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. I'm delighted to be joined on the phone now by Martin Millerick, who's the author of Walking Backwards to Heaven, Hope and the Catholics of Cloyne Diocese, 1700 to 1830, a book that's published by the Diocese of Cloyne. It costs 10 euro. And Martin, you're very welcome to the show. Okay, thank you, Patrick. It's a fascinating period of history and one that uh, I enjoy reading about myself. Well, first of all, maybe tell our listeners about the Diocese of Cloyne. It contains a large part of Cork. Yeah, that's correct, Patrick. It's most of East, North and Mid Cork. Um, it's, it's rich in history. It's rich in stories. Um, there's incredible variation, you know, in terms of, say, the East and the, the Northeast would tend to be more influenced by the Anglo-Norman presence. And then the, 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 there's a Gaelic West. And tell us about the wonderful title, Walking Backwards to Heaven. How did you choose that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Thanks for asking that, Patrick. Well, basically, it's, it comes from Cardinal Newman, and he thought that we succeed through failures, um, you know, that we need to make mistakes to get it wrong before we can get it right. It reminds me of, you know, the Antonio Machado's poem, Last Night As I Was Sleeping, where he says, we make sweet honey from my old failures. And it's, it's part of the process, I suppose, of becoming human. And uh, now how that relates to the Catholic supplying diocese in the period that I'm looking at, I suppose, you know, it's a story of of heritage, their their spiritual heritages, their their histories which they drew upon, um, their dilemmas, their sense of resentment, their tragedies, their anger, their hopes, and also their feelings of injustice and how they moved through that uh, to come to Catholic emancipation in the 1830s. And there was a huge amount of injustice, as you say, during this period. Talk to me about what it was like for, uh, if you were a Catholic in, in the Diocese of Cloyne in this period, how harsh an environment was it? Yeah, my impression, obviously it depends on where you were in society. But, uh, you know, yeah, it was a difficult time. I think, you know, there was there's a sense of marginalisation, a sense of injustice, both in the Irish and in the English language sources that I looked at, um, people who have been impoverished. Um, in some cases, you know, they refer to themselves as slaves. Uh, Professor David Dixon, he describes them as a separate, as having a sense of being a separate and injured community. And it's interesting, the, the concept of hope, because uh, despite all of the, the challenges, despite all of the injustices and the penal laws, th- th- there was hope. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think that was probably that was the part, one of the parts of the story that that attracted me the most. What I really looked, what I looked at were, you know, what were say the internal resources that these people who were pushed out and who were pushed down, you know, what were the internal resources that they drew upon? For example, their spiritual heritages, their histories. Um, what were the external sources? How did they help each other? You know, how did priests and teachers and midwives help each other? And then how did they draw on the outside world? 
So, for example, how did Klein receive hope from the outside world and how did it transmit hope back to, the, say, to continental Europe where it would have received, I suppose, a lot of maybe sympathy and understanding? And you also show how emigration actually, rather than being something that, that depressed people, it actually also contributed to that sense of hope. Yeah, I would think so. That, you know, say families like the family of Nano Nagel or the Hennessy's of Kilavolen, you know, with very, very strong connections uh, to France, to Paris and to, to the Cognac region. And the belief that you could get away from things that gave a kind of a, a release and a relief for people. I think that's a good point. Um, you know, if you look at the story, say, of Richard Hennessy, the founder of the Cognac family, the Hennessy, Hennessy Cognac, you know, he, he experiences 10 years of frustration and failure in Cork. I suppose it's that, that glass ceiling because he's Catholic. And, and eventually he decides that's it, you know, and he gets out and starts his brandy business in Cognac. So talk to me about what you learned from the book while writing and researching it. Were there things that surprised you? One of the things I learned is that history is about complex stories. You know, it's about the interweaving narratives between the marginalised and those in formal positions of power. Um, what interested me as well, how, say, you know, the archive that I used, um, you know, I, I suppose I, I excavated that archive, you know, to find a story that was hidden there. So I thought to shed light, to bring back uh, marginalised people from the periphery to the centre, to give voice to the silenced and to allow stories from the distant past to speak to us now. And, and definitely in terms of speaking to us now, we definitely need stories of hope. And uh, are there perhaps examples from the experiences of, of the Catholics of the Diocese of Cloyne that, that might uh, speak to people now? Yeah, I think there are, uh, Patrick. For example, in 1815, Bishop Coppinger uh, you know, he speaks of, he's, he's writing to another bishop and he says, quote, the, he's talking about his own congregation, you know, the Catholics of Cloyne, and he says, quote, the bulk of them are well disposed and if under equitable and kind treatment are susceptible to the highest moral excellence, unquote. He sees the good in these people and he knows if they're treated with kindness and with love. And I think that's, that for me, it was, it's the power of love. I think that that's, that's what breaks the, what Archbishop Helder Kamara called the spirals of violence. And were people particularly religious? Would you think that this was a time of, of, of great spirituality or was this uh, something that was more about a kind of a cultural and political identity for people? I think it depends on who you were and where you were. Uh, for example, where I come from in East Cork, I mean, the, an Irish language poet like Pierish MacGarrels, for example, you know, he compared Mary to the goddess Cleana you know, he has no problem blending the pre-Christian with the Christian. Or, for example, the cult of St. Gobnet of Ballyvournia. You know, she comes from uh, the god, a, a pre-Christian god of healing, Gobnew. Even the name itself, um, you know, was probably transposed onto her cult. And, and finally, when you look at the Diocese of Cloyne, do you think that the story there was the same as, as, as experienced by Catholics elsewhere? Or were there things that were maybe unique to Cork? Well... I've looked at some of the work of uh, Professor Kevin Whelan. Um, for example, he talks about how uh, Tridentine Catholicism in, in that period, there's, there's quite a difference between, we'd say, the Catholicism of the East and the South of Ireland and the Catholicism of the North and West of Ireland. And what I found particularly interesting there was that that's actually replicated in Cloyne itself, that, you know, because the South and the East of the diocese had such strong cultural and trading and economic connections with continental Europe, um, it was much easier to bring in new innovations like, say, parish missions or, you know, 
say, rituals, like one of the rituals I came across was where a, a, a midwife, a Catholic mid- midwife, for example, would have, in certainly in Ancien Regime France, would have placed her hands in between those of, of the priest when she was you know, brought to the position of the parish uh, midwife. And there's no reason why that couldn't have been replicated in, say, in, in Clawing Diocese. But in the west of the diocese, I think it's, there's a much stronger Gaelic-Irish heritage, um, and that expresses itself again through, say, for example, uh, you know, the, the cult of, of St. Gobnet of Balavornia. Okay, well, it's a fascinating story told so well in the book. It's called Walking Backwards to Heaven, Hope and the Catholics of Cloyne Diocese, 1700-1830. It costs €10 Euro, and the author is Martin Millerick. And Martin, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Okay, thanks, Patrick. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cal, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week is the May Bank holiday weekend, and we'll be looking back on one of my favourite shows, on the life and work of Horace. And in two weeks' time, we'll bring you some of the best new books in Irish and world history. So join us next week and the week after on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night. Talking History on News Talk. 